Let's pray. Father, we do ask once more that you would be especially near us as we study your word together. Now, Lord, we know that what we need in this hour is not man's wisdom, uh, man's solutions, man's suggestions, but Father, we need your word. And we pray that you would help us to study it, uh, to bring ourselves underneath it. And Lord, we ask that you would work among us, that you would strengthen those who are weary and weak, and that you would sort of, Lord, would, that you would reaffirm those who are pressing along and running well, that they would be uh, renewed in their strength. And Lord, we pray that if there are any here who have never tasted of your grace, that they would see you as the God of all grace and be drawn to you by the work of your Spirit. And above all, Lord, we ask that you would be pleased as we dive into this passage this morning. And Father, we ask all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 7 this morning. And there's a, a reason, of course, why we're not in the Gospel of Mark, and that reason is because I want to take uh, what my original plan was to take one Sunday uh, to think about spiritual health, uh, specifically spiritual health from the perspective of how to overcome spiritual weakness and how to restore spiritual vitality in our lives. And originally I had one Sunday marked off for this, but as I worked through this wonderful passage, uh, it turned into way more than I could do in one Sunday. And for your sake, uh, I decided to break it up into two. All right, you have in your outline, it looks like I'm going to cover four points, but that's not going to happen today. <laughs> Lord willing, we'll cover the first two. All right, we may do that by the skin of our teeth. We'll see. But I want to spend a couple of Sundays thinking with you about how to overcome spiritual weakness. I don't know where you are this morning, uh, but if you're like me, uh, this has been a, a long uh, year, a year full of, or the past year, a year full of changes and challenges and uh, trials, and difficulties, uh, things that we would have never anticipated. And if you're not careful in the midst of all of these trials, uh, you can find yourself waning spiritually. And some of you are doing really well. Some of you are running in full stride, and I'm happy that you're here. Um, but this coming year, God only knows what is coming for us. And so I want to spend some time thinking about how do we, those of us who are spiritually weak, how do we restore our spiritual vitality? And those of you who are spiritually strong and doing well, how do you sustain that over the course of this year? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you understand that the pressures of life and the burdens of family, the trials we go through, the responsibilities we carry day in and day out, all of these weigh on us. After a while, if you're not careful, these can begin to erode your spiritual strength and you can find yourself feeling spiritually anemic, exhausted, discouraged by your own spiritual progress, and wondering how in the world you became so spiritually dry all of a sudden. You just sometimes you get to the bottom of that and you just think, I just want to hang it up. 
So the question then, sorry for the pause, I'm not emotional about that. I realize that was a dramatic pause. I don't want you to be worried about my position. Although I will tell you, I needed this sermon, I needed this text, but God has sustained me in the past year. But the questions before us are something like this. How do we come out of these spiritually low places? You've been there. How do you come out of spiritually low places? What's the cure to spiritual weakness? And how do we restore or maintain spiritual vitality going into this new year? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 2 gives us answers to those very important questions. In 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy, who's a young man, probably in his mid-30s, who had been given a job to do that had begun to take its toll on him. Paul had sent Timothy to Ephesus in order to restore order to this church because false teachers from their own membership, you should think about this, false teachers from within their own ranks had risen up and were teaching strange doctrines, he calls them in 1 Timothy chapter 1. They were misleading God's people. These were men who were consumed with themselves and taking God's people off God's path. So that was one thing. The other thing, that the men in the church who were supposed to be leading the church itself, according to 1 Timothy 2, it seems like these men were full of wrath and dissension. They were fighting each other. And in, their, uh, in the midst of their fighting, someone had to step up and take charge. And it seems like in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the women had stepped up and said, okay, well, if you guys are going to fight, someone's got to lead this ship, so we'll, we'll take over and we'll take charge. And Paul had sent Timothy to go to this church and sort of set things back in order. Right? Let the women get back to the work that God had given them to do. Get the men to stop fighting. Run off these false teachers. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we also see that there was an issue with greed within the church itself. There was all sorts of problems. Lots of things to be addressed. It was a messy situation. And Paul had commissioned Timothy to go in and just take care of it. Go in, set things straight. Now certainly this was no easy task. And somewhere along the way, as Timothy is carrying out his God-given responsibilities, fulfilling his ministry, he began to wane or weaken spiritually. There are signs of that if you look at 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, if you look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, also 2 Timothy 1 verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, verses 13 to 14, chapter 3. You see this all throughout 2 Timothy, that Timothy, in the midst of his ministry, is beginning to feel the toll of dealing with life in a fallen world, specifically in organizing a church that was in disarray. And so naturally, Paul is concerned about Paul. Paul is concerned about Timothy, rather, because he loved Timothy. He loved the church in Ephesus. And Paul himself, according to 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul knew that he was about to conclude his race. He's about to die. And so 2 Timothy is actually Paul's last inspired letter he ever wrote. And this was to Timothy. And the objective of 2 Timothy is to really inspire Timothy to renew his strength, strength 
and to get back in the saddle, as it were, and do the work that God had given him to do. And of course, there are multiple pleadings with Timothy to come to Paul soon as well. It's really twofold. Strengthen Timothy, and also for Timothy to come and see Paul before he goes to glory. And then, so we come back to chapter 2. What's going on in chapter 2, in verses 1 to 7, is that Paul gives Timothy, who's spiritually waning, he gives him four directives or commands or imperatives that are aimed to restore Timothy's spiritual health. It's essentially a recipe for spiritual vitality. And it comes in the form of directives or commands. By following these four directives, Timothy, and you and I as well, Timothy would be able to overcome his spiritual weakness and get back to the ministry God had given him to do. In the same way, if we follow these four directives, you and I can overcome our spiritual weakness and fulfill the wonderful, vital ministries that God has given us to do. I've summarized these four directives in your handout, and we'll work through them one by one in our time together over the next few weeks. And my hope is that we'll all be reminded of God's directives, God's commands for us on how to overcome spiritual weakness and how to sustain our spiritual strength for this coming year. That's my hope. So will you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. 2 Timothy 2. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. You may be seated. So four directives to regain spiritual strength. The first directive we see is in verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The command here is simply for Timothy to be strong. Spiritually strong, of course. This is really the overarching admonition that, Tim, that Paul gives to Timothy. Timothy's spiritual weakness, then, from Paul's perspective, is unacceptable. Something needs to change. Timothy needs to do something about it. Timothy has a part to play. His own spiritual vitality hinges, and so does yours and mine, hinges on his obedience to this first directive. But this command is also passive. So there's a part that Timothy plays, but the the command is actually passive in Greek, meaning that the source of Timothy's spiritual strength is not to be found within himself, 
but it's to come from an external source. So this is not a, you know, pick yourself up by your bootstraps kind of directive. And this is not a, oh, you're weak, Timothy, we'll just be strong. All right, what's the next problem? Right, it's not like that. It's, it's a command to do something, but to do something in a very direct and pointed way. The, the idea here is that Timothy, of course, has a part to play in restoring his own spiritual strength. But he cannot generate the strength he needs from within himself. All right, think about that. You have a part to play in recovering your spiritual strength, overcoming spiritual weakness. But you cannot generate the strength that you need from within yourself. So Paul's directive is something like directing a thirsty man to go, to get up, and go to a well to draw water. He must go to the well if he wants water because he can't produce the water within himself. In the same way, Timothy is to draw strength from a source outside of himself. And that source, of course, is identified in verse 1 as what? The grace that is in Christ Jesus. That is the source. So if we want to continue the analogy, the grace of Christ is the well from which Timothy is to draw his spiritual strength. Another feature here is that Paul's command is in the present tense. So the idea is that Timothy is to repeatedly, on an ongoing basis, be drawing his spiritual strength from the grace that is in Christ Jesus. All right? Now we'll come back to that. But note first the warmness in Paul's tone. He's not harsh with Timothy. He's tender. He's compassionate with his brother who's weak. But he's also direct. It's something like, my son, draw your strength from the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now the implication here, and we, you need to see this, the implication here is that Timothy seems to have at least momentarily ceased, stopped drawing his strength from the fountain of God's grace in Christ. Right? Which is why Paul sees that it's necessary to redirect Timothy to draw his strength from God's grace in Christ. Timothy has some, at some point or another ceased going to the well to strengthen himself for the work that God had given him to do. And the result of that was that, according to chapter 1, verse 6, Timothy's spiritual flame began to flicker, to grow cold. Now, I want to just pull out a critical spiritual principle there. When you fail to draw your strength from the well of God's grace, you will inevitably begin to look inwardly to muster up the strength and the courage and the competence you need to do the ministry that God has given you to do. You will always be drawing from a well. You will draw from the well of your own strength, or you will draw from the well of the strength of God's grace. And when you cease drawing from the well of God's grace and start drawing from your own well, you will find that that inward turn leads inevitably to spiritual decline and great, great, great discouragement. And the reason for this is because you don't have within yourself the ability to do the ministry that God has called you to do. 
God has designed it such that the ministry will always be too big for you. In the ministry of raising your kids, the ministry of homeschooling them, the ministry of evangelizing your coworkers is always way bigger than you can handle. And that's God's design. So that you will continually go to the well of His grace to get the strength you need. Jesus was utterly clear on this, but we seem to constantly forget it. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. All right? If you try to do something, something apart from Jesus, you'll end up feeling like nothing. Right? You'll feel lousy and discouraged because God's design is that you can't accomplish the work in the strength you possess. It's like doing physical labor, hard physical labor for a week, but also fasting that whole week. You're you know, in the middle of like you know, swinging your hammer and your friends look over and you've passed out. You know, they see that you've, obviously you've passed out because you haven't had enough nutrition. Right? You can't do this kind of work in the nutrition that you have within yourself. You have to go outside of yourself to strengthen yourself for the work that God has given you to do. If you try to do the work, the ministry that God has given you to do, your home, in your church, wherever, if you try to do that within your own strength, you will always fail. Always. You will always fail. And that's because God loves you too much to let you succeed as you draw your strength from yourself. And as you fail in this, you, you will inevitably start to feel spiritually anemic. You live in your own strength for a while. You start feeling weak. You start feeling like, oh, this is just too much. I can't handle all of this. Right? You begin to spiral downwards. And you find yourself increasingly disappointed by your own performance, by your own ability. You look around at everyone else's spiritual growth and you get discouraged. You compare yourself to others. And friends, if you don't repent quickly as that spiral is going downwards, you'll find yourself just wishing that you could just crawl in a cave somewhere and be alone, and that other people could just carry on the work that God has given you to do. That spiral downward, you know this, that spiral down is difficult to reverse. And so here, then, is our brother Timothy, serving the Lord with all his might, trying to fulfill the responsibilities that God has given him to do, yet it seems like he feels like a failure. He seems weak. Paul has said, everyone in Asia has left me. And he goes on, talking about how everyone has let him down. And it seems like Timothy is right on the cusp of doing something similar. And, and, and Timothy is Paul's spiritual son. The last thing he would want to see is Timothy to abandon the work. And so Paul, out of his concern, reminds Timothy that the first step back to spiritual strength is to get your eyes off of yourself and back onto the Lord Jesus Christ. That's step number one. I love the way Robert Murray McShane put it. He said, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks to Christ. Now, he specifically says, I want you to notice this in verse 1. He specifically says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ. 
Strengthen yourself by means of the grace that is in Christ. Now, he could have said all sorts of things. By the mercy, the kindness, the tenderness. But he says, the grace that is in Christ. Now, why does he say grace? Why does he say, Paul, Timothy, you need to be strengthening yourself by the grace that is in Christ? Well, I think it's because our default is to sort of live on the hamster wheel of performance. We go round and round and we evaluate our lives and our ministries and our spiritual growth from a very limited human vantage point. And God, as I said earlier, is kind enough to let you fall off the wheel, kind of bang your head, wake you up, and remind you that you were never saved by your own spiritual performance. You weren't saved by your spiritual performance. You're not sanctified ultimately by your own spiritual strength and performance. And you cannot carry out the crucial responsibilities that God has given you by your own strength. Certainly a part you play, but you cannot faithfully carry out these important tasks apart from the empowerment of God's grace. And we know that. This goes all the way back, really, to 1 Chronicles 29, where David offers a prayer of gratitude that goes this way. 1 Chronicles 29, 11, and 12. Just listen as I read. David says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. And and listen to this. And in your hand is power and might. And it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. I'll read that again. It lies in your hand, God's hand, to make great and to strengthen everyone. This comes from God's hand. Now, of course... We don't just sit back and say, God, I'm spiritually weak, so would you strengthen me? No, 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 no. Paul reminds us that we need to ask God for help, and then we need to get up, and we need to go to the fountain of His grace, the well of His grace, and draw strength from that. It's really similar to Hebrews 4.16, where the writer of Hebrews says, Since we have a God who is merciful and gracious and compassionate, who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses... We are to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. It's a throne of grace so that, notice this, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The mercy and the grace are there in rich supply. We have to get up and go get it. And that's what Paul is saying here. That's the directive. Let us draw near to this throne of grace. Let us get up and strengthen ourselves in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You need to get up from your spiritually weak state and go to God. Paul strikes the balance between his own effort and God's grace so well in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, For I am the least of the apostles. And not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Talk about past failures, talk about weakness, 
Talk about potential disqualifying sins. I am the least of all the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. In other words, he's saying, I'm not fit to do the ministry that God's given me to do. But, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. So who's doing the work, Paul? Yes, God is at work, I am at work. The grace of God empowered Paul to press on in the midst of all of his weakness, in the midst of all his failures. The grace of God is what empowered Paul to transcend his circumstances and to live for God and not to be sort of pulled into the vortex of chaos that surrounded him, but to keep his eyes fixed on his objectives. Now let me ask you a question. What do we see? What do we see when we consider the grace of God in Christ? What is it that we're seeing? What is it that we're looking at? To use another analogy, when you go to that well of God's grace in Jesus Christ, what exactly are you pulling out that so strengthens you? Well, let me tell you a little bit about that, okay? We know that grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace is God's unmerited favor placed upon you because of Jesus. That's grace. It's unearned favor. Favor from God, not because of your performance. Not because of your personal holiness. It's favor from God, not because of your evangelistic success. Not because of your administrative skills. It's favor not because of your gifting and talents. It's favor not because you're the best parent, you're the greatest homeschooler, or you're the most faithful employee. No, grace is unearned favor. It's favor that doesn't hinge on your performance. This is the glory of the gospel. God's loving smile because of Jesus. That's grace. Let me put it another way. Grace is God's loving smile upon you simply because He has chosen to smile upon you and not smite you because of your sin. That's grace. It's God's smile because of Jesus, not because of your performance. Grace is God's promise of help and assistance in the ministry of your life simply because God delights to help those he loves. God is God, grace, rather, is God's tender upholding of his people, not because they performed well that day, but because it's the very nature of God to strengthen his weak people. That is grace. Grace is to realize that your standing before God does not depend on your ministry performance. But it's favor accomplished and obtained because of Jesus' life and death. That's grace. And when you see that clearly, when you get your eyes on God's grace in Christ, you will inevitably overcome your spiritual weakness. Because spiritual weakness is connected to your failure to draw strength from the well of God's grace. If 
if we're to take 2 Timothy 2, 1, uh, in a plain reading, right? If you fail to strengthen yourself from God, on God's grace, the result will be spiritual anemia. However, if you fix your eyes on the grace that is yours in Christ, the favor that is yours, the smile of God on you, regardless of if you fail in the task of homeschooling or preaching or teaching or whatever task you have before you, if you fix your eyes on the reality that whether you live or die, whether you succeed or fail, you have the Father's smile, you will find yourself strangely empowered to do the work He set before you. I love the way that the poet Henry Light put this in his hymn, Jesus I My Cross Have Taken. After celebrating the gospel and the wonder of grace, the fifth verse he says, Soul, then know thy full salvation. Rise o'er sin and fear and care. Joy to find in every station, something still to do or bear. Think what spirit dwells within thee, Think what Father's smiles are thine. Think what Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? Think what Father's smiles are thine. The Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, I mentioned him earlier, he once said, If I could but hear Christ praying for me, I would not fear a million enemies. And I would say, If you could but see the Father's smile, you would never question His total commitment to you, even in the midst of your greatest failure. If you could but see His smile, you would still be strengthened to press on, even when you've blown it. And all of that is because of Christ. Because of Jesus The Father abounds with love towards those who trust Him because of Jesus. Grace reminds us that ultimately none of this life, none of your ministry, none of your salvation, none of it is actually about you in the ultimate sense. Grace reminds us that this is all about God. It's about the glory of God. And specifically, it's about God's glory demonstrated through the exercise of His grace. That is the end of it all. Now, you might find that very narrow. God's glory demonstrated through the exercise of His grace. It's a pretty tight definition. I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians 1. I told you that I'm not going to cover all points today. I just want to show you this. Uh, I just want you to see, really, that the whole design of your life, your salvation, but also your sanctification, and also the ministry that God has given you personally to do, it's all designed to bring God's glory, to bring God glory for His grace to you. Ephesians 1, let's start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, 
Now notice verse 6. To the praise of the glory of His what? Grace. So all verse 3, 4, 5 find their end or their purpose in that little phrase, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Now then look over at uh, chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4. Paul replays this theme throughout the book of Ephesians, but it's very clear here in chapter 2 and verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now notice verse 7. So that... That's a purpose clause. This is the end of it all. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's the end of it all. So that in the ages to come, God might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. The end of all things is for God to get glory for demonstrating the riches of His grace and kindness to undeserving men and women like you and me. That's the point of it all. It's striking, verse 7, the way that he puts that. It's, you could think of it in terms of a painting and a canvas. You know, we are like the canvas And God's grace is the work of art. He's doing this work in us, uh, this work of grace in us, so that for all eternity, creation will look at us and they they will say something like, Wow, isn't God gracious? Verse 7, So that in the coming ages He might show, He might demonstrate, He might placard the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ. So that for all eternity, people look at you and they say, God is incredibly gracious. They don't look at you and say, wow, he was incredibly gifted. She was very talented. Wow, she made some great accomplishments with her life. She did a great job. No, the whole point of it all is so that you in eternity will be posted like a, a work of art and God will say, look, and all the angels and all of creation will say, Wow, look at God's grace to save such a sinner and to use such a sinner for such marvelous purposes. We need to remember that the entire design of our lives from beginning to end is to bring God glory for being so completely and utterly kind to someone as weak and unworthy as we are. That's the whole point. That's the design. And by doing this, God puts His enemies to shame as He uses the foolish and weak things of the world. Right? And when we are, just notice this, just hear me out here. When we are consumed with our own performance, in whatever task, parenting task, ministry task, whatever it is, when we are consumed with our own performance, we are missing the, the point of it all. The point of it all is for God's glory to redound and His grace 
to you. Not because you are something wonderful. So you failed again as a parent, as a spouse, as a Christian. If you are going to the well of God's grace and drawing your strength from the reality of God's constant, never-ceasing, never-failing grace, and that His purposes are to triumph and to display that grace through your weakness, you will begin to see that your failure will actually be worked together by God for your good. God will make that mess another simple stroke of the brush of His grace in your life that will be celebrated for all eternity. So, don't fret over failure. I'll say that again. Don't fret over failure. Don't let the fear of failure keep you from doing the ministry God is calling you to do. Don't wear your failure as a sort of albatross around your neck. Don't do that. And if Satan could have his way, he would have you obsessed with your own incompetency and your own weakness. And that would keep you from doing the work God's given you to do. But you know, Ephesians 2.10, God has created you in Christ Jesus for good works. And it's all of hell's ambition to keep you from doing those good works. And one of the mechanisms, one of the schemes, Ephesians 6, of the devil, is to get you looking at yourself. If that happens, you will be anemic. You will be weak. And you will stay in your seat. And you will not do the work God has given you to do. But if you get up from your failure, one of my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs 24, 16. The righteous man falls seven times and gets back up. Right? So you fail. If you get back up, and with God's help, you go to that well and you start musing on the purpose of your life, the purpose of God's work in your life, you will find that you have suddenly overcame your spiritual weakness. And so that's why Paul, first and foremost, directs Timothy to get his eyes off of himself and to go to this well, to be strong or to strengthen himself by means of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So that's directive number one. Don't draw strength from your own well. Okay? I need you to agree to that. Don't draw strength from your own well. Go to the well of God's grace and get your strength from there. Okay? But there's a second directive in verse 2, which I've generalized as this. It's the, priori- it's the, the um, directive to prioritize obedience. So the first directive is to strengthen yourself in grace. The second directive is to prioritize obedience. You find yourself at the bottom of a spiral. You're weak spiritually. You've declined. You're aware of it. You know you're feeling anemic. You look at this year and you think, I don't have the strength to go any further. Okay, directive number one, strengthen yourself in God's grace. Directive number two, prioritize obedience to the master. Okay, look at verse two. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, Timothy, remember, Timothy is a pastor. His job 
in regards to the Bible at least, is to be teaching the word and entrusting the word to other people. Do you agree with that? That's his job. So Paul's virtually not telling Timothy anything he doesn't already know. In fact, it's striking to me that Paul has, of all the things Paul can say as he's dying, this is what he says. And it's kind of like telling a fireman, make sure you put out fires. Or a policeman, make sure you catch bad guys. This is so fundamental to the job description that it seems like it can go without saying. But, remember Timothy seems to be weakening spiritually. And what happens when we begin to weaken spiritually is that we find ourselves neglecting the most fundamental baseline responsibilities of life. And really, I think what happens for us is that feelings begin to rule over us. I feel weak today. I also feel this way and this way and this way. I don't feel like going here. I don't feel like doing this. Feelings ascend to the place of lordship in your life. And if you don't feel like doing what God has given you to do, you just don't do it. You don't feel like loving your spouse, you don't do it. You don't feel like reading your Bible, don't do it. You don't feel like loving your neighbor, you don't do it. Right? It's no longer God's word that's ruling your life. That's the point. Something else has stepped in and it's feelings. Feelings have taken the place of God's lordship and what happens when feelings begin to rule is that you inevitably, inevitably begin to neglect your fundamental responsibilities. And so what Paul's doing, I think, here is reminding Timothy of what the baseline requirements are. And let me remind you, as a Christian, of all the stewardships that God has given you, the most crucial responsibility is actually your stewardship of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your most fundamental stewardship is your stewardship of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me, let me explain to you what I mean. Your stewardship of the gospel of Jesus Christ is fundamental because you, as a Christian, are supposed to be strengthening yourself on what? The gospel of grace. Right? As Christians, you are called to be passing on the truth, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19-20. The gospel itself is to inform the way you work. The gospel is to inform how you live. It's to inform how you raise your children. Right? This stewardship of the gospel of God's grace, the mystery of God's grace revealed in Christ, that stewardship touches every other stewardship you have. And that's true for us, and it was true for the Apostle Paul, and it was true for Timothy. Which is why Paul directs Timothy back to this baseline stewardship. And look at verse 2 again. We'll just walk through it phrase by phrase. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, he says. Now, let me say, that, that phrase there, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, that's referring to the content that Timothy is to give to other people. 
right? What you have heard from me. That's the content. The things which you have received or heard from me, you give those to others. It's the same content that Paul mentions if you flip back to chapter 1 and verse 8. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel according to your own power. Now, according to the power of God. Suffer for the gospel according to the power of God. And then notice, here's the content. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So this is the content that Paul had entrusted to Timothy. Now notice also, I want you to see the next verse, verse 11. Paul himself understood that he had been entrusted with this. And so in verse 11 he said, For which I was appointed. For which what? For the gospel. I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Those are three things. Preacher, apostle, and teacher. In other places, Paul will summarize all of that responsibility with the word steward. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul understood that he had received from God a stewardship, which of course made him a steward, which meant that he had a responsibility to care for the content of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This wonderful grace that we draw strength from, we don't hoard it. We don't just keep it to ourselves. We pass it on. Verse 2, The things which you have heard from me, he says, in the presence of many witnesses, these things entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You take this treasure of grace that you've been gifted, that you enjoy, that you find to be the source of your strength and vitality. Don't you dare hoard that. You take that and you entrust it to others. There's really two ways of doing that. One is what we might call evangelism. Paul is proclaiming the truth everywhere he goes. He's preaching the gospel. But there's another sense in which Paul talks about the entrustment of the gospel, and that's what he's talking about here. And it's really, the word would probably be discipleship that best captures what Paul has in mind here. It's not just scattering the truth to anyone But there's a certain person that you select and you take this treasure that is the gospel and you bequeath it, you pass it on with great care to another. And those are, he says, faithful men. Not just anyone, but faithful men. The kind of man, Timothy, you're looking for to be the recipient of this wonderful uh, soul-strengthening message of grace are faithful men, men who are reliable trustworthy, and dependable. Now remember, there was a need in this church in Ephesus for qualified leaders. So the idea, I think, here is that Timothy is to focus his attention on selecting men who stand out as exemplary in faithfulness. They're reliable. They're not wishy-washy, double-minded. But they're stable men And they will be equipped by Timothy to then entrust this wonderful message to others. And the ultimate 
objective, of course, is that the gospel would continue to be passed on from generation to generation throughout the centuries, long after Paul and Timothy are gone. I mean, it's, it's essentially a relay race, to use another analogy. Paul was simply handing the baton over to Timothy, and Timothy now was to run his leg of the race. Timothy, don't quit because you feel lousy. <laughs> don't quit because you're weak. We all know you're weak. Right? We didn't call you to do this. God didn't call you to this task because you were strong. It's a given that you're weak. Now, I'm giving you this baton, and you've got to run. Right? Get your eyes on the grace that is yours in Christ Jesus, and now do your fundamental responsibility. Take the truth of the gospel and pass it on to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. So a question for you, as we sort of extend this in an application to us, is how are you doing with your stewardship of the gospel message? You've been given this gospel of grace. We've all been given it. We've all received it. And you stewarded it all last year. How did you do? How did you do in your entrusting of the glory of the gospel to others? Well, don't let your failure keep you from taking the baton and running well this year. You should, I would exhort you, to prioritize this fundamental objective. If you find, I mean, if you find yourself having failed in this responsibility of discipleship, don't sit there. Get up, go to the well, draw your strength from God's grace, take the baton that's been passed from Paul to Timothy to the Reformers to you and I, from your grandparents or whoever that passed the baton to you. You have a responsibility. You have an obligation. And now's the time to start being faithful in this area. And really, I, I mean, if I'm, I'm just being honest here, one of the reasons I'm, I'm just I'm wanting to talk about spiritual vitality with you is because if you fail in that fundamental obligation, I know that you're failing all over the place. Right? I'm, because this responsibility is like the sun, right? It's like the sun in the orbit of your Christian life. This responsibility to be a steward of the gospel of grace. If you fail that, if that thing, if your son is not there, then I know that you're failing in all these other areas. And now, again, is the time to reorient yourself onto this baseline responsibility. If you fail to steward the gospel, the result will be a tragedy, really, of no little consequence for your life, for the lives of your children, and by extension to the life of our church. Okay, I told you I had a lot to say this morning. So let me extend this one step further. I think the principle here from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, extends beyond the baseline stewardship of the gospel in our lives and encapsulates the entire Christian life. This is why I'm calling it the, the, the directive is to prioritize obedience. Fundamentally, it's the obedience of your stewardship in the gospel, but by extension, it encapsulates Every responsibility that you have, every obligation that God has put on your plate, when you decline into spiritual weakness, you begin to prioritize what feels right over what is right, and you can stop doing what you know you need to be doing because you simply don't feel like doing it. 
If you don't feel like doing it, you just stop it. And I, I want to tell you that if you continue that way, you will remain spiritually weak. You can't grow as a Christian and not follow these directives. The principle I'm trying to draw out here is the principle that the way, the fundamental way out of spiritual weakness is first enriching your heart on the grace of God and finding your strength there. But then secondly, it's to prioritize obedience, especially when you don't feel like obeying. I would say it's, most, it's always important to obey. Let me get that out of the way. It's always important for you to obey the Lord. But I would say it's most important for you to obey the Lord, especially when you don't feel like it. It seems like Paul is saying, Timothy, just keep doing what you know you need to be doing. Keep putting out fires. Keep catching bad guys. Keep doing the fundamental responsibilities you have, even though you're discouraged and you don't feel like doing it. The way out of your weakness is to obey God. Now, you may say, I can hear the objection. Isn't that hypocrisy? Isn't that hypocrisy to do something when you don't feel like doing it? And the answer is no. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not uh, doing something when you don't feel like doing it. If that were hypocrisy, you would all be hypocrites this morning. And I would be a hypocrite because I, well, I don't know how you feel when you wake up in the morning, but I'll tell you, I don't feel like waking up and getting out of bed, right? I didn't feel like getting out of bed this morning, but something drove me to get up. And you know what that was? It was my obligation to the Lord, my drive to live for Him. And it's the same thing that woke you up this morning and got you here, right? It's this desire to be pleasing to Him. So it's not hypocritical to do what you know to be right when you don't feel like it. Hypocrisy is, is essentially a show. It's putting on a show. It would be hypocritical for me to come in, in here and say, oh, I love waking up in the morning. It's wonderful, isn't it? Man, I just hop right out of bed, get to work, no problem. That's hypocrisy. It's dishonesty. Hypocrisy is to put on a show. It's literally to play a role on the stage. To play a role on the stage. It's to give an outward show without the inward reality. And if you put on the show of loving your wife in front of others, but behind closed doors you constantly mistreat her, that's hypocrisy. But if you come home from work exhausted... And all you feel like doing is going to bed. But you know you have the responsibility to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And you choose to come home and love your wife and your children even when you don't feel like it. That's called obedience. That's called love. That's called faithfulness. It's never hypocrisy to do the right thing when you don't feel like it. So let me exhort you. You don't feel like reading your Bible? Read it. Do it. And you will find that your feelings begin to get in line as you obey. Feelings, they lie to you, and they will tell you things that are not true. But feelings are designed to follow the truth. 
If you put feelings first, you'll make a mess of your life. Your life will be like this roller coaster, up and down, up and down. It's no way to live. Feelings are to be subjugated to the truth of God's word. Feelings are wonderful. They're wonderful. It's part of our uh, having been created in the image of God. But since the fall, our feelings have gone awry. They are no compass for life. The compass for life is the word of God and truth. And if you want to get yourself out of your spiritual weakness and overcome it, you've got to throw aside uh, the superiority and authority of your feelings and bring yourself underneath the authority of God's word and prioritize obedience to him. Now, we are out of time. So what I plan to do next week is cover the next verse in this passage. That's all I will say. Um, I have ambitions, but the heart of man plans his way, and the Lord directs his steps. So let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the reminders this morning of your grace, the reminder that our standing before you has nothing to do with our performance and everything to do with what Christ has accomplished for us. Or we thank you that by grace alone, we are yours. We thank you that we are your sons and daughters through the work of Jesus. And we thank you that that is immovable, that you will never forsake us. And we pray that you would help us to obey the directive of strengthening ourselves from the well of your grace. And we also ask that you would help us to obey the directive, to prioritize obedience to you, to subjugate our feelings to the word, and, Father, to prioritize the baseline responsibility of stewarding this wonderful message of salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone. And we pray that you would help us this year to be resolved to live faithfully for you. And we pray, Lord, that you would fulfill these resolves for good in every work of faith by your power. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.